you have in front of you uh, the PowerPoint slide of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I am going to also be using a number of other slides that Joel sent to you as an attachment. I hope you were able to open that up or print it out or whatever you do with those things, because I want to use this passage once we're finished with it to just review a little bit of doctrine, because uh, this is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible on the nature of God as Trinity. So uh, let's quickly review. Uh, I want to say a little bit more about verse 14, which we didn't finish last time. This uh, is the beginning of the book of Ephesians, which we're now studying. And verses 3 through 14 is a, uh, it's often called, uh, correctly in my judgment, a praise hymn to God, where Paul calls on the Ephesian believers and then all of us who are reading it, and studying it to praise God, uh, who has blessed us with every conceivable spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places. And then he calls on us to praise the Father in verses 4 and 5, and then to the praise of his glorious grace, to praise the Son, the beloved one, the Son, who has redeemed us, and in, in him, in Jesus, all of the purposes and plans of God in this cosmic issue will be settled in Christ. And then finally, in verses 13 and 14, he asks us to praise the Holy Spirit. So praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, and then to praise the Holy Spirit who has sealed us. And I spent a fair amount of time last week taking apart that term sealed. It's a very, very important term. And it is one of the most important terms in my judgment and in the judgment of most expositors for the security of the believer, that you are sealed with the Spirit. That is a sign of ownership. That's how that term was used. It's a sign of safety and security. Excuse me. And so that is, is the kind of term that should be comforting. It should be securing. It should give us the confidence that what God has begun in us, he will complete, Philippians 1, 6. But then he's not finished. He adds in verse 14, who, that relative pronoun is referring to the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. What inheritance? The inheritance he mentions in verse 11, and all that he talks about in verses 8 and 9 and 10 how God is going to wrap everything up in terms of history around his son, the Lord Jesus. So he, the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee that God's going to keep his promise. That term guarantee is a, is a, a financial term in the ancient world. It was used of a down payment. It was used of a, of a surety uh, that you are going to do what you say you are going to do. And it's, uh, it's another, just like sealed, it's another fantastic term stressing our position, our identity, our security, who we are in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit is that down payment that God is going to keep all of his promises he's made to us. I've often said this when I'm in a pastoral counseling situation where someone is struggling with their security, their identity, and all that, that the Holy Spirit is a gift from God that not only provides your security and safety, but it is a guarantee that he's going to keep every other promise he's made to you. That's one of the promises. It's in the New Covenant passage in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, that the Holy Spirit, God's going to put on our hearts 
and he's he's gonna he's gonna make the the new temple of the living God us our bodies and the Holy Spirit will indwell it, and that God has done that is a down payment that he's gonna keep every other promise he's made to us, and so this again as he does in the previous three he ends this little brief discussion about the Holy Spirit with that phrase to the praise of his glory. And that is, you saw that to the praise of his glory in verse 6. You saw it in verse, <clears throat> excuse me, you saw it in verse 12. Now you see it in verse 14. That's one of the ways we can outline this passage, because each emphasis is on a member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So I wish I'd had time to finish all that last week, but we just ran out of time. I even went over. But now I've completed the exposition of this, and I hope I hope this is going to become, for you, a favorite passage of yours. I read this a lot. It's one of those passages which reminds me, and my wife too reads it, reminds us of how important to God we really are. This is all he's done for us. Our relationship with him in terms of the right-hand side of the railroad track, which we looked at a bit, little bit last week, is, is, is in eternity. From the foundation of the world, he had chosen us. That is how important we are to him. On through the guarantee through the Holy Spirit that he will keep all of his promises. Now, I want to use this as an opportunity to talk a little bit about, I'm, I'm hoping in some cases it'll just be a reminder. Maybe in other cases it's going to be a, a teaching section to just solidify in your mind, what do we mean when we speak of God as a trinity? So before I start that little quick uh, lesson, uh, any questions finally about verses 3 through 14 before we move on? <clears throat> Jim, I have a quick one, and that is that some, I think, denominations even teach you can lose your salvation. And, um, <clears throat> and I had a Sunday school teacher uh, of this denomination that believed that. And... Um, so can you comment on that? What's your, what's your, uh, how do you address that? In light I do not believe the Bible teaches that. And so this person sincerely believed it. So how do you witness to that person by taking them to these verses, do you think? Or I would, I would, uh, this would be a place that I think is very important. Uh, another passage is the last cluster verses in Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul just lists item after item after item after item. Um, the, 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 whole, the whole argument of the book of Romans, uh, chapter 8, the entire chapter, and I would argue the entire book, but certainly chapter 8, uh, I, see no, I see no room there for any idea that God will take back his gift of salvation. In my judgment, that's the right way to talk about it, that God takes back his gift. A gift is something that just in our relationship, members of the family and so on, just think it's almost unimaginable that your child, if you know, you have your children or grandchildren or whatever, and you give them a gift and you say, okay, uh, if you don't do this and this, this, I'm going to take the gift back. That's just, that, that's an almost unimaginable development in a human relationship. Why would we say that that is the relationship God, as our Heavenly Father, has with us, his children? Now, I'm watching over you, 
And if you don't do this and this and this, I'm going to take back my gift of salvation. That is, that is not the language of the Bible at all. And I think as a complement, C-O-M-P-L-E, as a complement to this important teaching of the security believer, is to remind uh, Hebrews 12 is a good place to do that, that the relationship of, of, of people who put their faith in Christ to God is heavenly father to, to child. And as a father or a mother disciplines their children, God disciplines his children. And that discipline can be extremely severe. All one has to do is look at the children of Israel or look at a number of the, the people in the New Testament. One thinks of Peter and others whom God disciplined, but that doesn't mean they lost their salvation. Again, I would put it this way. The Bible speaks over and over and over and over again that salvation is a gift. So what you're saying to me is God's going to take back the gift that he has freely given to me. Instead, the language of the Bible is God disciplines. This is exactly what it says in Hebrews 12. God disciplines those whom he loves, and that discipline is severe. An example is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, where the people in the Corinthian church were, were abusing the Lord's table. It was horrible what they were doing. And Paul says, because you are doing this, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you sleep. And the metaphor of sleep in the New Testament is the sleep of death. So God has taken some believers home as a form of discipline. That's not harsh. That's an act of love to prevent his child from doing even worse things. And so God acts that way as our Heavenly Father, who is absolutely perfect, absolutely just, absolutely righteous. Jim? Yes. Does, doesn't that, you know, also get into the idea that if you can lose your salvation, um, not only would it make uh, God someone who's taking back the gift, but aren't you saying, okay, well, it's what Christ did, plus you cleaned your room? Well, in a way, I mean, that's one of the, there's a really important and dangerous slippery slope mm -hmm. that Christians can get into if they start believing that, that God will take back his gift of salvation. Mm -hmm. And that, it, that, that <clears throat> gift is always contingent on what we do. Mm -hmm. That's not grace. <laughs> right, exactly. You're removing... You, you, it's, it's a very, very dangerous, I believe it is, a very dangerous position to hold. Because if a person is always concerned as to whether I did something so egregious that God's going to take away my salvation, then you're never going to grow. You're never going to mature. There'll be no depth in your life. And you're that position— Going back to the question. I've I always seen that that, that that position comes from fear, too. Oh, well, you're letting people get away with sin, right? It's like the argument in Romans, hey, let's sin even more so God can be glorified, and, and that's refuted. And if the more that you take the whole counsel of God, you see where, the, you know, the grace and justice, they meet at 90-degree angles to form a whole, and then people want to focus on one piece or the other to either do something that, that you shouldn't or to— you know, judge people that they shouldn't, lest they be judged by the same standards that well, they apply. I mean, I've had to have this discussion. I just had it not too many days ago with parents who have a prodigal child, and they are convinced that their child at 
some point earlier in their life had trusted the Lord, had uh, a vital, robust relationship with the Lord, but because of sin and, and other things that entered into their life, they're now saying, well, I don't consider myself a uh, Christian any longer. Well, you know, only God knows the human heart. Mm-hmm. And I will never, ever, ever say, well, I don't think that person is a Christian because. Right. I, I think that's, we do not have the authority to say that. Only God knows the heart. But it is important to say, if your child, if your child really did put his, his or her faith in the Lord, then that relationship is heavenly father to child, and the heavenly father will deal with his child. And the Bible says, and I, again, I, one of the main passages is Hebrews 12, God disciplines those whom he loves. It proves that we're his child. That's what the author says. And, and, and it, it's not nice to say, but it's important to say this. And that discipline is a discipline of love, but it can be very tough love to get that child back. And God, only God, and, th- and they ask me, well, then what should I do? I say, keep the lines of communication open, love them, do not in any way shut off any of the relationship with you. As long as they want to have a relationship with you, keep that relationship. Because you may be the person, you may be the individuals as a mother and dad that God will use. But only God knows the heart. But if, it is, if that person is a child, God will discipline that child. That is a, an axiom of Scripture. Because he knows what it's take to bring his child back. And I always like to use the prodigal son of, of Luke 15. I mean, I'm sure you know that parable. It's a very famous one. But the, the father in the story is God. And how is God looking at his son, his child? He's looking down the road because he knows he's going to come back. And the key word is compassion and love. God always deals with us on the basis of grace and love and compassion and mercy. But in dealing with that, that can be, in dealing with us in those terms, that can be harsh. And you look at King David. God's discipline on David's life for that one year was severe. He writes about that in Psalm 32 and in his confession of Psalm 51. And I'm saying all that because that all is a part of the teaching in the Bible that goes with the security of the believer. But I've been in minute pastor ministry 37 years, and, and a lot of it's with young adults in a, a, a higher education format. But I know this for absolute certain. If you don't have security of your faith and your position with God, you're never going to grow. You're always going back to the question, well, maybe I did something so horrible and so egregious that God's going to take back his gift. I don't believe you can find that teaching in the Bible. I really don't. Jim, um, the um, people who are a little more um, scripture read will throw this one back. Obviously, the unforgivable sin, but let's not go down that trail. Um, the you mean the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Is yes. Oh, right. you got to. You have to understand the Matthew. An, you have to understand that it's context. Yeah, that's easy to con. You that's can get context and get answer. answer. But I'm, what I'm talking about is they'll throw up. They'll throw at me is um, the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. The okay, you know, if you are this committed to going down this road, I'm going to 
give you what you want. If you're this determined, there's there's a, a breakaway point or well, is, or do you see or do you see that as more of you just got into the middle of my plan to free my people. Therefore, <laughs> this cannot be allowed to continue. Well, no, I think there's another way to approach that, and it's the approach in Romans chapter 9 when Paul uses Pharaoh as an example. And first of all, if somebody's going to use Pharaoh to talk about a believer losing their salvation, that's a horrible example. Yeah. Pharaoh was never a believer in the first place. Right. <laughs> this man, we're going to go back to the Bible, okay? Yeah. The other factor here is you read in Exodus 7 through 14, uh, well, really 10, but it, you, you have to remember that those first series of plagues and Pharaoh hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it is only, and only God knows this, Pharaoh crossed a threshold uh -huh. where God now is going to use him, Pharaoh, for his glory and Pharaoh's heart is hardened by God uh -huh. for God to accomplish his purposes. But don't ever let someone use Pharaoh in a discussion like that when you're talking about a believer using their salvation. That doesn't work because Pharaoh was never a believer in the first place. So that's like, that's a ridiculous example. I don't want to talk about that. What's your next example? I'm being nice. harsh, but that's what I mean. Yep. That's what, no, that's good. Now, what I want to do here, uh, man, is take a moment to look at the idea of God as Trinity. You, you have a copy of this in the slides that, that Joel sent to you earlier mm -hmm. this week. My definition of God as Trinity is God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. And this little diagram then that's on the slide is a very familiar one. I've seen this in dozens of places. But, I mean, you can see, and whenever you try to draw something or make an analogy of God as Trinity, it always breaks down because you're trying to talk about something and visualize something that is extremely difficult to visualize. But a triangle might work with the, the circle. The Father is God, the Spirit is God, the Son is God, but the Spirit is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit. And so that's just a way visually to capture that there are three persons within the one essence of God. Now again, this is, this is a difficult part for you and me as humans. We're one, we're finite. Finite means we're limited. And two, we're temporal, where God is eternal. And so this is a finite temporal creature trying to understand the infinite, eternal, transcendent God. But what has happened over the centuries is this is the language that humans, theologians, have, have developed, and there's consensus, this is the best way to talk about it, that you make a distinction between the word essence and the word person. Essence focuses on all of the attributes that make God, God. Person focuses on those three individual personalities or persons within that one essence. And the Bible has chosen to use these three terms. Those three persons are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We just saw that in Ephesians 1 that we just finished studying. And so if you then use this diagram, which I put together a couple of months ago, this takes Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. You have a copy of this. 
using the definition and then just showing that the difference of the personalities within the Trinity of the three persons, they differ relationally and functionally. How do they differ relationally? Father, Son, and Spirit. How do they differ functionally? This is a fantastic passage to summarize that. Because in the praise him, Paul says you praise the Father. Why? Because he chose you and he predestined you to adoption into his family. You praise the Son because he redeems you, and through him the Father's plan to reconcile all things to himself is revealed. Then we praise the Spirit because he seals us and is a guarantee, a down payment, that the Father is going to keep his promises. So you have God, Father, Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. This passage is a wonderful example of working through in human language who God is as Trinity. And this was settled, this, this consensus of the right language was used, to use was settled in the first couple hundred years of the church. There was consensus reached, everybody agreed, and for centuries and centuries and centuries until the 19th century, in the middle of the 1800s, and a bunch of German seminaries in the Holy Roman Empire started to rip this apart, deny the supernatural, and now, in terms of liberal theology, just reject the whole idea of God as Trinity. He's just some transcendent force out there. We don't know much about him, which is absolutely ludicrous, but that is where much of liberal theology is today. All right, now I was talking kind of fast there, but if you go again to this, using this diagram, this illustrates the definition. There's a difference between essence and person. And then Ephesians, which we've just finished studying, illustrates that persons, Father, Son, Spirit, illustrates the separate functions. Now, e even with all that I've just been saying, this is still difficult. This is still difficult for Western, rational, linear thinking people to say, okay, but this still is hard. I have been studying this for 37 years, and this is still difficult. But this is the way the Bible, this is the way the Bible talks about God. The definition I'm using isn't in the Bible, but the definition I'm using reflects everything that's in the Bible about who God is. And so one more time, this will be on the quiz next week, and I'm going to ask you to memorize it. God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. Where can I go in the Bible to see this illustrated? Answer, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. You see the three persons of the Godhead, and you see the different jobs, if you will, the different functions that each member or each person of the Trinity has in the plan of redemption. And it's, that's why that passage that we've just finished studying in Ephesians is such a tremendously important passage. It nails down with some clarity the language we use to talk about God. Okay? Now, you have copies of these things. That's what Joel sent you. So, you can set them aside and look at them and study them again if you wish. If you don't, then use it to light your fire this winter. All right? Any questions about the idea? Paul talks 
I'm going to start this in another one of my Bible studies. We're going to start studying the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And the key phrase in those three epistles that Paul uses is sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is the absolute requirement to godly living. If you don't understand who God is and you don't understand the key elements of doctrine, you're never going to grow. You're never going to be able to understand the depths And that's why the next passage, which we're now going to start studying, is one of the most marvelous prayers in the Bible, because Paul prays for the Ephesian believers that they're going to understand all this. Sound doctrine is the key to godly living. And I've had people say, well, I don't think I need to learn sound doctrine. I say, well, then you're not following what the New Testament says. Doctrine is important to learn. And it's sound, that Greek word sound is translated sometimes healthy, that which is conducive to spiritual health. So I'm giving you a little lecture there, but anyway. Okay, may I move on, or do you have any questions? Yeah, this is Woody. Yes, I have a question. Woody, go ahead. Am I talking, or is somebody else? Yes, Woody. Yes. Okay. Um, Did I understand you that uh, sometimes if a person was sinning uh, and didn't I'm, I'm losing you, Woody. I, I'm not hearing what you're saying. Why don't we go on to uh, Nelson, John, add a question, and then maybe we can pick up Woody. Woody, you muted yourself oh. with the space bar. You either have to hold it down or take the little microphone and click on it. Okay, Dr. Ekman, can you hear me? Uh, yes, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Uh, it seems to me that in the Bible... There are passages, at least I think I've heard or read, the statement that God the Father and God the Son are one. Am I quoting that correctly? Yes, uh, in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. But yet, in in your circular chart here, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Son. That's right. So, how do you... John, now, now just think for a minute. The, and Jesus says this, the Father and I are one. When you look at that definition, which term is Jesus referring to? Essence or person? Oh, God. You follow me? In other words, when Jesus declares the Father and I are one, when Jesus declares that, and you look at the definition of God as Trinity, one essence of three persons, a different, which one of the terms is he referring to, essence or person? I suppose essence. You got it. That is exactly what he's saying. That is another validation, John, that verse you quoted, and if you look at that very detailed passage of John 5, 19 through 24, where Jesus is talking about his relationship with the Father, and, and it is the interplay between the concept of essence and the concept of person. And when Jesus says the Father and I are one, he is focusing on essence. Okay, so that's John 5, 19. Uh, yeah, uh, 19 through 24. And the verse uh, that you're quoting or uh, alluding to, uh, it's in the Gospel of John 2. I think it's... Um, I think it's a little later on in, in, in that chapter. 
but uh, you can even look in a concordance. But uh, when Jesus says that, that's a, that's a wonderful validation of the definition. <laughs> Father and I are one, essence. Father and I, persons, are one, essence. It's a perfect illustration of the concept of Trinity, which is why the Pharisees didn't want to hear him say that. They didn't want to acknowledge him as Messiah. Woody, did you get your mic uh, on, that you can ask a question? Yes, that's uh, you answered it. Thank you. Okay, you bet. How about Woody? Did you? Yeah, I think I'm going to send you an email. Okay, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Thank you. All right, let's move on then. I have a bunch of Calvin and Hobbes things there we won't look at. I don't know about you, but I love Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, they are not being published anymore, but that's the most theological cartoon that was ever published. And when you have Calvin and Hobbes, it's just tremendous, but we won't deal with that. Now, what I want to do here, and what time is it? Oh, my goodness. We will never get this finished, but I want to introduce it. You have a copy of this in the slide, one of the slides that Joel sent to you. I want to make sure that you understand the structure of this prayer that Paul is about to pray in verses 15 through 23 of, of, of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Uh, it's one of the most magnificent prayers in the whole Bible. Uh, I mean, it is astonishing, really, what Paul is praying here. But at the same time, it's one of the most exciting and thrilling prayers in the Bible that you and I should be praying for our children, for our grandchildren, if you have grandchildren, for friends, for one another. Because what Paul is praying here is that, and this is the key element of the prayer, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, that sounds so flowerly and spiritual and wonderful. What in the world does he mean? And I want, I want to go over that. I want to make sure you understand that. But I started this, I've preached on this, so I, I, I use this phrase as I begin the, uh, the, the sermon. Philosophy says the most important the most important axiom is know yourself. Socrates said that, for example. But for the Christian, the axiom is know God. Because if you don't know God, and you don't understand God, and you don't understand what he's doing in Jesus, and you don't understand the plan of redemption, and you don't understand the promises, you, you are going to be always in, a, in the mire of a shallow, superficial faith. That is not what God wants. And so Paul's prayer is that, that the Lord will open, enlighten the eyes of the heart of the Ephesians. It's a prayer for an enlightenment of thought, a prayer for an understanding of truth. And the way he structures it is absolutely astonishing. So I'll come back to this outline in a minute. Let's begin to look at, let's begin to look at the prayer, all right? And as we begin to look at the prayer, what I'm interested in you doing here is kind of seeing the way in which Paul structures this prayer, but also the way in which he appeals to God for the kinds of things that he's interested in these Ephesian believers manifesting uh, based on verses one through uh, verses three through 14. 
So if you look at verse 15, you see, for this reason. Now, that's, in a way, that's kind of an unusual way to begin this next paragraph, but it links us to what he just talked about in verses 3 through 14. That wonderful praise him to God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, those two really important terms in the Christian life, faith and love, faith in Jesus, love toward one another, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So the, 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 the next key point is, what is he praying? As he prays for them, he does not cease to give thanks, remembering them, you, plural, in my prayers. What's he praying? That's what verse 17 and following is all about. But please note, again, how he, how he sets this up. Paul has heard. Paul is in prison when he writes this. Remember when we talked about the beginning of a study of the book of Ephesians. Paul's in prison. He's in prison in Rome. And he writes this letter because of what he's been hearing about the Ephesian church. What is he hearing? He's hearing about their faith. And he's hearing about their love toward one another. Man, there is nothing more exciting for a pastor to hear than those two things. And then secondly, he says to them, you know, I've, I, because I've heard all this, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He's praising and thanking the Lord for this church, remembering you in my prayers. And so verse 17, that first word, that, is a, is a Greek term that defines content. So the, the content of his prayer is this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And so the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, I put there on the slide, it's appositional, there's a little equal sign. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ is the Father now, that's, that, again, is the language of the Trinity. It's the language of the persons versus the essence, and the focus here is on the person, that the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Father, that he may give, the Father may do what? That he may give you the spirit of wisdom, and the, correctly, in my judgment, the ESV has capitalized spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit who indwells us that is the source of wisdom and knowledge in our life. And that term knowledge is a term of content. It's a term of information and understanding. And that's, I, I refer you there in the brackets to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 12 and verse 16, where at the end of that fantastic passage, we've studied that here, I've referred to it several times in the class over the years. That is where Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 is talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit reveals to us the hidden mysteries of God. He searches the deep things of God. He reveals them to us so that, verse 16, we will have the mind of Christ. Not an exhaustive, omniscient mind, but we will see and understand things from God's perspective. 
because now we're steeped in the Word of God. And so Paul's prayer is the same prayer that's in 1 Corinthians 2, that the Holy Spirit will become the source of wisdom and revelation of knowledge. So Paul is praying that these Ephesian believers will take what he's just said about God as Trinity in the verses 3 through 14 and make it applicationally relevant for them. See, the idea of God as Trinity is not some abstract concept that only three people understand. That is truth for every believer. We are to understand the nature of God in that way. But Paul also recognizes that, and this is what 1 Corinthians 2 is, is, is arguing, it is the Holy Spirit who reveals and teaches us this truth. The Holy Spirit is the source of wisdom, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. The Holy Spirit is the source of revelation. That's the revealing truth from God. That's what that means. That's how it's used in 1 Corinthians 2. And the end result is we have factual, intimate, reliable, confident knowledge of who God is. And so with that, this is the intended result of Paul praying that that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, you know, that's, that's filled with metaphors. That's figurative language. Your heart doesn't have eyes. <laughs> so he's not using heart as that organ that pumps the blood through your body. Heart is always the, the figure of speech in the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, for the center of our will, the center of our understanding. And so the eyes of our hearts, the eyes are always used, again, figuratively, of, of that which opens us to understand it. You, you will never understand anything, see anything, or, or, or acquire anything if you live with your eyes shut. And even people who become blind, I'm blind of my left eye, but without, without full sight, then there are other ways in which you can be informed and understand truth. And enlightened means your eyes that are now open to receive the truth that God has revealed will be enlightened. You will have a, you will have a, a level and degree of understanding about the truth of who God is, what he's doing, and what he's doing for you, and where you fit. So, I mean, this is a, a prayer that you and I should be praying for our children, for our loved ones, even for one another that the Father will give us the Spirit, which He has, He now indwells us, that's going to be filled with wisdom, revelation, that will result in the knowledge, so that our eyes are going to be opened. That our eyes are going to be opened and enlightened, so that our hearts, the center of our will, the center of understanding, will now be, it's like, extend the metaphor, our hands are now wide open to receive all that God has for us. There's a, there's a wonderful praise hymn that our, our pa the pastor of the church where I serve on staff, sometimes before he, he gets, uh, preaches his message, he'll have us sing that little worship chorus, Open my eyes, that I may see Jesus. Have you ever sing that song? It's that same idea. You're, you're praying to the Lord that he's going to open our hearts, open our minds, open our understanding, open our emotions, open every aspect of us to receive what God has for us. 
And so it's, it's proper, I believe, I've prayed this in my own life many times, Lord, help open my eyes so that I will really understand what you want to teach me here. I don't mean to open the eyes that I see with, but the eyes of my heart, the eyes of my inner being, that I'm going to understand what God has. Now, with that, what time is it? Okay, we got a little bit yet. I want you to notice now what follows. Now, I, I hope you allow me to focus on the grammar here, because the grammar helps us to understand what he's saying. So let's go back for a moment. Let's go back for a moment to uh, the, the slide here. You have a copy of this. Paul prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That avenue to the heart and the mind, the eyes, figuratively speaking. The prayer is therefore of enlightenment of thought and of understanding of truth. And so with that in mind, Paul takes them on a little journey. He wants them to look back. He wants them to look forward. And he wants them to consider the present. God is interested in all three of those segments in terms of time in our life. So let's first look again. You're going to take them on a little journey, 18, 19, and following. You're going to want them to look back. He's going to look them for, want them to look forward, and he's going to want them to then consider the present. So let's look at the passage. That the eyes of their heart may be enlightened. That, it's a purpose clause that you may know, the Greek word there is oida, that you may know the facts about, that you may know the certainty about what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, it's, it's past tense, he has called you, that's past. And the Greek word is kaleo, which is one of Paul's favorite words for salvation, the call to salvation so that you may know and completely understand the hope to which he called you. He called you to salvation. You accepted by faith his son, the Lord Jesus. And the result of that is now, when you put your faith in him, you now are motivated, energized, empowered by hope. Before you came to Christ, you were, and these are the words in Ephesians 2, which we'll study in a couple of weeks. You're wallowing in your sin. You're wallowing in your darkness. There's despair. There's defeat. You come to faith in Christ. There's now hope. Because the Lord has taken care of your past. The Lord has taken care of all of the egregious sins that you committed. The Lord has taken care of all the despair. And he's given you hope. You now have a reason to wake up in the morning. You know, have a destiny going back to the predestined to adoption of son. There's now hope for the future because you've accepted the call. Secondly, to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So the, the, the future is the glorious inheritance. Now you can understand that in two ways. The glorious inheritance that you and I have, Paul talked a little bit about that when he was referring to the Son in the praise hymn, in verses 8, 9, and 10, and 11, the inheritance as the Father wraps everything up in Jesus, 
That's part of our inheritance. We are predestined to be a part of that final wrapping up of all things with the second coming of Jesus and all the things that you know will happen. But because of the Greek phrase there, this also can be understood that we are the glorious inheritance of Jesus, which is how the Old Testament puts it. So I think of Psalm 2 and Psalm 2, verse 7, 8, 9. We are the inheritance. God has promised, God the Father has promised to the Son to rule and reign over this, and he has given the Son the promise of an inheritance, his people. All of those who have put their faith in Jesus, he's coming back for us. He's going to snatch us up into the air. And, and we are his inheritance. So that it's a double entendre in the language there that we have a glorious inheritance, but the other flip side of that same coin is we are the inheritance of Jesus, his glorious inheritance, because God the Father has promised that to God the Son. And so when he comes back for us at that event called the rapture, wherever you put it on the timeline, but there is going to be a rapture, then we, that's part of him calling us up. The dead in Christ were raised first, and we are alive or caught up to be with him. That's part of the inheritance. And that's why the Bible then speaks of the marriage of the Lamb, and then at the beginning of the kingdom, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I mean, these are fantastic truths that are captured in a phrase like that. And that's what Paul is saying. I am praying the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you understand all this. Because, man, you know right now I'm dumping enormous amounts of stuff on you this hour. I'm probably getting to the point where an old lady one time when I was preaching, I did a whole conference. She came up to me at the end of the conference. She said, Dr. Ekman, my brain is tired. So maybe some of you are getting to that point. I'm overwhelming you here. But that's all right. It's good to be overwhelmed with spiritual truth. And then one more thing before we go back and look at the outline. And what is the immediate, excuse me, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his might? And so if you go back again to the slide, the present focus that Paul wants them to understand is a surpassing greatness of his power that is available to you and me now. So Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we will know what? That when we put our faith in Christ, we had a brand new hope, a brand new way of looking at the future, engaging the future, understanding the future. That too, uh, in the past. That's, that is what changed, so that we will now look at the future differently, this glorious inheritance. And then, in terms of the present, the immeasurable greatness of his power that is available to us now. And that's what the rest of the prayer is about. What is the glorious power that is available to us now? If you go back, this power raised Jesus from the dead, this power seated Jesus at the right hand. This power subjected everything under his feet. This power gave him the authority as head over everything for the sake of the church. And so the language Paul uses, it's, it's in 
in the original language of the Greek, it's superlative followed by superlative followed by superlative. It's an incredible passage. The working of his might. Now, I put a little colon there that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That might, that power raised him from the dead. That might, that power seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. He, the Father, put all things under his feet, the Son, and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, uh, what time is it? So we're, we're done reading the prayer, but for you, who, if this is the first time you've ever read it, it's probably the first time you've ever done an in-depth study of it. You need to go back and reread this over and over again. And the structure of it is I've given you a way, it's not the only way, but a way to look at this prayer. Paul is praying something that is relevant and applicationally relevant for you and me today. The Holy Spirit needs to help us the Holy Spirit, according to John 16, is our teacher. The Holy Spirit needs to help us understand what God has done, is doing, and will do for every one of us. And because of what God is asking us to do in this world right now, this, this present application, verses 19 through 23, is really important. How can I pull off the Christian life? How can I be all that God wants me to be? How can I really achieve victory over sin? Answer, God has given you the power to tap into to do it. What's the nature of that power? It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, same power that seated him at the right hand. It's the same power that subjected everything under his feet, fulfilling Psalm 110 verse 1 the same power that gave him authority as head over everything for the sake of the church. And so you say, oh, wow, I need the Holy Spirit to give me the wisdom and understanding of how I apply this. The wisdom and understanding that this is the power I can tap into and so part of our faith journey, and this is what Paul is praying, part of our faith journey is that we will really begin to understand this. That's why he puts it in that figurative language, that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, that we will come to understand and grasp these profound truths of what God has done through for us through Christ. Now, Jim, this is what I want to say, but let me see if you have some questions. Yeah, Jim, I, th I think this is something that you're bringing out and that we can be pleasing to the Lord. And I think sometimes we forget that um, it's not just a matter of trying to please him, that we do reach a stage where we, where he is pleased with us. And he confirms that as he uh, guides us by his Holy Spirit. And uh, I think that's kind of that you brought that out to me today 
uh, that he can, like God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, that Christ can think and see us in that same way when we seek his will. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would affirm that. That's right. And then the second thing before we dismiss, um, Glenn Leatherwood uh, has, uh, has coronavirus. Oh, my. And he is in a VA hospital right now. Oh, my goodness. It's, so, so I would like to remember him in prayer. Yeah, absolutely. So if he's in the hospital, then it's, it's a pretty serious case of it. Yeah, he's quarantined to his room, and uh, I don't know, Glenn, are you still on? Yeah, I'm here. Um, I'm, I'm high risk, so it's precaution. Okay. Uh, I'm keeping my oxygen up. Okay. And um, right now it's a weather issue to get me home because uh, uh, Texas is pretty well iced over and snowed over. So. Sure. Um, sure. But I'm hoping to be home by the weekend. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Well, good. We will. Well, thank you. I'm glad I didn't know you were on uh, here in the class. That's wonderful. Yep. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. All right. Now, we still have a minute if you know, and you paid for it. You have it if you want it. Uh, is there anything else you want to ask me? I want to review this again next week. But um, I, I honestly, I would encourage you, if you know to look at it, but to take this outline that you have in front of you on the slide, and you have a copy of this because uh, Joel sent it to you. But just look at this little framework I've created and then go back and, and reread this prayer. And I honestly, I would encourage you to pray this for yourself, but also to pray it for others, because men, you and I need the Holy Spirit's help in truly grasping and understanding the profound nature of what Paul is praying here for the Ephesian believers. And this, this is a marvelous prayer. And for us to be serious, most of us, and I do this all the time, just pray, Lord, bless such and such. This is a great way to pray that God will bless by praying something like this. It's very specific, very targeted, and it zeroes in on what every one of us needs a deeper understanding of who God is, what he's doing, and the power that is available to us, which is the main point of the last part of the prayer that we just quickly went over. So I want to say a little more about this next week, but it's we're out of time, and I hope it's been a, a good hour for you. We've dealt with some good sound doctrine, but that's not a bad thing. Sound doctrine is a good thing. It's conducive to godly living. So I'm going to pray, and Glenn will remember you, and, and uh, the rest of you, stay warm and stay well. Father, we're thankful for the Word of God. We are thankful for this absolutely wonderful passage of Scripture, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Lord, I have always used this as one of the central passages on God as Trinity, one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally, and this is a perfect illustration of how the Godhead works. And secondly, thank you for this prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers. It is applicable to us today. We all need the Holy Spirit to give us greater wisdom and understanding revelation of what you're doing so that our eyes of our hearts can be enlightened to truly understand the hope that has now entered our life as a result of our salvation 
the future glorious inheritance we have, as well as the present power that's available to us now. Help us to grow in our faith as we grow in our understanding of you. Sound doctrine is the key to godly living. So help us to be men of strong, strong faith, men who know the word of God and who are serious about our relationship with you, who seek to please you. And we thank you that you are honored and love us and care for us. You are a good shepherd, Lord Jesus, and we trust in you each day. To be with these men, I especially pray for Glenn right now. Thank you. He's in the hospital getting the kind of care he needs. And we pray that indeed he will be able to come home this weekend. Heal his body, restore him to full health, we pray. If there are any other needs there might be in the group, meet each one of those according to your perfect will. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. See you next week. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you.